Devil's Rejects. Sobriety can be tough at an isolated oil camp, but these guys stepped up and made AA happen and even found time to celebrate. I'm 44 and I've worked in the oil industry since 1992. I got sober young in AA in 1995. During my first 10 years in the program, I was running from 100 forms of fear. I was focused on my career and obsessed with service in AA. At the same time, I was living an inversion of the 12 steps on all levels of my life, a kind of AA anarchy. When I turned 30, I finally got enough courage to take my career to a greater skill level, which meant I needed to make some social sacrifices. I started working in oil camps throughout Western Canada, including Matanoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, where I spent most of that time, I'm sorry, where I spent most of that time. The last few years, I've worked closer to home here in British Columbia. There's not a lot of recovery in work camps. Meditation, imagination, and creativity are useful ways for me to deal with all the isolation. I've been in and out of just about every camp in Western Canada, and to be perfectly frank, I mostly white-knuckled my sobriety for those first 10 years. I wouldn't wish that kind of life on my worst enemy. Between each job, which might last anywhere between two weeks and two years, I'd go back to my home city to recharge and break down emotionally within the protective circle of my AA program. For the last year, I've been, nor I've been in Northern British Columbia in a work camp up near Alaska. The camp is on a tiny island connected by one lane road to the mainland. When the weather is unusually poor, the road gets washed out and we mainly just survive until we have access to the airport, which is about two hours away. I work in a dry camp, meaning there's no alcohol, the term being a throwback to the days of prohibition. The camp is so strict with its rules and regulations that we call it Camp Alcatraz. When products like alcohol and drugs are supposedly unavailable, contraband flourishes and the debauchery of the people in the camp is even worse than it is in those oil camps that allow the designated drinking establishment on their premises. Two of the younger guys from my town heard I was up here at Camp Alcatraz, so they hopped on the job to come meet me with the with I'm sorry, to come meet with me the last year. When they found me in the camp, they told me they had respectively 18 months sober and 6 years sober. They knew I had a lot of time sober, so they asked me to help them start an AA meeting at the camp. As much as I would love my solitude, I couldn't turn down this request. We called our meeting the Devil's Rejects. Word traveled in the camp and to the outside world, and our numbers grew quickly. We were able to arrange for space for a meeting in the janitorial maintenance room about the size of a walk-in closet. It's a great size room for our membership, which is about six people. We have attracted a few newcomers since we started our group. One moved on when he decided the living conditions were inappropriate, but he continues to attend meetings in his hometown after being introduced to the 12 steps in our camp. Another newcomer is gradually coming up to his first year cake next month. Another fellow is coming up on two years. We have a new hire who just started the job and is attending our group. He has six months in. We have lost a few other members, <clears throat> men with multiple years as we gained a few new faces. A month from now, with the grace of God and the support of the fellowship that has grown up around me, I will be celebrating 24 years sober. Thank you, AA. Just doing the best we can up here. Rob S. Burnaby, British Columbia. Twelve ways to have a sober holiday. There's a little flyer passed around that many AA meetings every year called 12 Tips on Keeping Your Holiday Season Sober and Joyous. On it, it says, many of us have enjoyed the happiest holidays of our lives sober, an idea we would never have dreamed of, wanted, or believed possible when drinking. This definitely holds true for me. I find the flyer suggestions very valuable. 
I was raised by my mother and grandparents in a home where alcohol was enjoyed responsibly, especially during the holidays. My parents divorced because of alcohol. It seems that the gene that triggered my disease of alcoholism came from the paternal side of my family. My earliest use of alcohol was at Christmas time. When we were children, my sister and I were allowed to have a small glass of wine mixed with soda on Christmas Eve. The years rolled by. I got drunk on the first time when I was 17. On Christmas Day in 1975, after I had reached the legal drinking age, I was sitting in a local bar with my grandfather. I remember him telling me that having a beer now and then was okay, but don't go getting hooked on it like your old man did, he warned. I promised Grandpa faithfully that I wouldn't even that I wouldn't, even though I had already gotten drunk on several occasions. Towards the end of the 1970s, my mother and father got remarried and somehow my father stopped drinking on his own. So I became the one with the drinking problem. We were not allowed to have alcohol in the house and our tradition of the Christmas Eve drink was discontinued. After a couple years of happy married life, my mother, who was only in her 40s, died. I had helped mom buy our house. Excuse me. After a couple years of happy married life, my mother, who was only in her 40s, died. I had helped mom buy our house, so I inherited it. My father left shortly afterwards, and now my sister and I had the house to ourselves. I now had free reign over my drinking, which of course got much worse. I believe that now that mom was gone, there would never be, there would never again be a happy holiday season as long as I lived. After I got a job as a security guard in a local manufacturing plant, my sister got married and left the house. I was now alone, except for seeing my grandparents for meals and sponging money off of them for dog food and groceries, uh, parentheses, drinking money, and seeing a therapist, my isolation from the rest of humanity was nearly complete. Even when I was in the bars, I kept to myself. I felt that even the professional counseling I was getting wasn't helping. I started to think about suicide. As it happened, two of my fellow guards at work were both members of AA. They knew I was drinking. I had even come into work drunk once, and they shared their stories with me. I had recently found a girlfriend. I decided I didn't want to drink I didn't want my drinking to mar that relationship, so I asked one of them to take me to an AA meeting. I now know that it isn't a good idea to put conditions on your sobriety because when the relationship ended after two months, so did my sobriety. After a short relapse, I came back to AA and gave it a second chance. This time I was angry and I argued with my sponsors. I once threw away my big book only to buy another one when I cooled off. I threw away my 12 and 12 too and had to buy another. I acted foolishly. But in spite of that, I've been sober in the program 32 years. And although I still live alone, I am not lonely. I have met many other single people in AA who are enjoying the sober life. Thanks to the fellowship and the 12 tips sheets for the sober holiday, I had found that the Thanksgiving and December holiday season is a time of year to look forward to. I really enjoy helping, I'm sorry. I really enjoy helping decorate our AA hall as well as appearing as Santa Claus at meetings and passing out candy canes. I also love hosting holiday dinners in my home for fellow members, as well as other friends who might otherwise have a lonely holiday. I also take great pleasure in worshiping my higher power and celebrating in church and singing in the choir. There is even more happiness for me in ringing and singing carols at Salvation Army Kettles. Performing as Ebenezer Scrooge in Dickens' A Christmas Carol, both in community theater and on our local radio station, is an honor I truly cherish. Parentheses, turns out Scrooge and I have a few... (laughs) Turns out Scrooge and I have a few selfish traits in common. I get a special joy in seeing newcomers experience a holiday sober for the very first time. I see, it, I see to it that they get a copy of the 12 Tips flyer. I also get a tremendous sense of gratitude when we have Thanksgiving dinner at our local AA hall 
or have coffee and cheesecake at my sponsor's home after an evening of caroling. There's a special feeling of joy at our candlelight AA meeting on New Year's Eve, knowing that <clears throat> excuse me, knowing that we've all lived another year sober. We then look with hope to the 365 days ahead. Now, don't get me wrong. I've had difficult times during the holidays, even in sobriety, but I wouldn't trade my worst holidays sober for the best ones of my drinking days. One thing I do know for sure, I'm not lonely at holiday time anymore. Anonymous from uh, Kewanee, Illinois. Eight hundred miles away, thanks to technology and quick thinking, an isolated alcoholic gets rescued by her group back in Colorado. Currently, I live in a North Dakota town of two hundred people. The closest meeting is fifty miles away and is held at eight p.m. To travel at night is no longer an option for me. After more than three years of being unable to attend meetings with a very limited contact with AA, I drank again. The law placed me into a medical treatment center. At that time, I had been drinking for two months, and the progression of my disease was astronomical. I originally sobered up in AA at age 15 in August of 1980. Many years later, after picking up my 21-year chip, I also picked up a drink. After that, I would sober up for a year or so before I drank again. Twice, I stayed sober for seven years. Every time I went back out to drink, I became involved with the wrong side of the law. Back in 1981, I had been a founding member of an AA group in a small town in Colorado, the Laporte 287 group. For years, this was my home group. It has always been a smaller meeting, averaging about 12 or 13. Um, I'm sorry, it was always... It, had, it has always been a smaller meeting, averaging about 12 or 13 folks. The group has two candlelight meetings a week and six open meetings total. The group also actively involves itself in service work. Today has been more than three months since I was discharged from treatment here in North Dakota. I was terrified, sick, alone, and desperate the day I was released. I called my old sponsor from the Laporte 287 group back in Colorado. I also called another member from there. She was homebound to, due to hip surgeries. The group was bringing a meeting into her home once a week. I wanted to be a part of the group again so desperately, but now I lived 800 miles away. At first, I thought there was no way I could participate. Then, while on the phone with her, I had an idea. <clears throat> Maybe I could attend the meeting at her home while on speakerphone, which is one of the few features on my smartphone that I understand how to work. We tried it, and it went well. I soon discovered the conference call feature and tried calling my sponsor while I was on the phone with my homebound friend. It worked. The meeting at her home was small, and all the members either knew me or knew of me. The group and my sponsor agreed that I could attend conference call meetings at both locations, the home group meeting and the meeting at my friend's house. Now I regularly pick up my homebound friend on her phone, and we go to the Laporte 287 meeting together by phone. My sponsor is our host on her phone. Other members support this arrangement and are very inclusive and encouraging. I always look forward to the five minutes of catching up before and after our meetings. This phone connection allowed me to attend the group conscious meeting and a three-hour group inventory. I also attend the meetings of a big book study group and traditions study group. And that's not all. Every Saturday night, I join the candlelight grapevine meeting and I get to have daily contact with my sponsor. My higher power has made this all come about in spite of my doubts and my geographical isolation. Today, one of the most basic tools in my spiritual toolkit is my phone. Life has not been this good to me in years. Barbara B. Binford, North Dakota.